Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with Terrence Woodbury, Chief Executive Officer and founding partner of Hit Strategies, a public opinion and research company that specializes in researching millennials, people of color, LGBTQ+, and other underserved communities. They were heavily involved in polling and tracking voters during the 2020 midterms especially concentrating on the Democratic voter. We spoke a few days after the election, when some races were still undecided and the House and Senate numbers were still up in the air. Talk to me about the overall Black vote and and what we saw, turnout, enthusiasm, etc. Yeah, you know, at Black voters uh, are doing what they have to do here. You know, uh, we've seen the Black vote increase not significantly, but it's 1% higher than it was in 2020. But what's significant there is that voters of color and young voters always decline during a midterm, always. And so it's it's not the one-point increase that I'm impressed by. It's that we maintained our vote share from 2020, from a presidential year, from the highest voting presidential year in history. Black voters maintained that in the midterm. And it, it reminds me of what uh, what a young man was telling me in focus groups in Philadelphia a few weeks ago. When I was asking him about enthusiasm, and we've seen these enthusiasm gap measurements, we've seen that 
Democrats closing the enthusiasm gap in the last few weeks. Well, I was never really that concerned about enthusiasm because black voters don't always vote enthusiastically, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean we're not voting. You know, let me, let me ask you this when I hear and I've been hearing it for years when you hear, well, people don't turn out for midterm. There's always a change historically from the party in office, blah, 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 blah. How much of that has to do with the apathetic voter the second time around after a presidential election or how much of it has to do with, quite frankly, the idea that too often those in power don't give the voter what they want or need in order for them to enthusiastically or unenthusiastically come out and vote the second go round. That's a good place to start, Ed, because I think that is the most, the single most important dynamic in this election, right? Everyone was setting expectation based on historic precedent that the party in power will always lose 30, 40, 50, even 60 seats Mm -hmm. um, in a midterm. Democrats are on path to lose five or six seats as opposed to the 60 um, that that Barack Obama lost in his first term. But but while we were focused on the historic precedent, we weren't taking into consideration that we are living in an unprecedented time and that uh, we have an unprecedented electorate, right? In 2018, uh, we activated 40 million new midterm voters, 40 million. It was a 15, 14% increase in the midterm uh, uh, turnout. That was more than three times the increase of any midterm in history, right? And so while we look at the historic precedent of, of the candidates that we vote for, we have to also look at the precedent of the voters that are choosing those candidates. And since Donald Trump was elected, we have injected millions of new voters into the electorate. And we thought that they were anti-Trump, anti-MAGA voters that showed up in 2018 and then showed up again in 20 and fired him. Well, those same voters showed up in 2022. Mm-hmm. And that now makes them likely vote three out of three super voters, right? They have now changed the electorate in ways that we will continue that, that, that will continue to uh, determine outcomes of elections uh, for the next few cycles. Let's talk about what we heard in some polling corners and certainly through the media prior to election day, that was, we, we were going to see this huge red wave. Uh, black men weren't going to turn out to vote. Um, as you look at the engagement after election day, uh, we know the red wave as you know, was projected didn't happen. Talk to me about, uh, the black male vote, uh, you know, where that went, where it helped hurt, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So ever since 2008, when Barack Obama entered the political stage after that election, in every election since then, we have seen less black men vote for Democrats in every single election, more black men vote for Republicans in every cycle since Barack Obama entered the, politi- the, the, the political stage. We saw that reverse on Tuesday. We saw that trend reverse for the first time in 16 years. Um, that that it is very likely that more black men voted for Democrats in this election than they did in 2020. And that would be the first time that trend reversed in almost 20 years. Uh, but but also, you know, that red wave was also met with uh, we were expecting a pink wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't see a, a, all of the evidence of that just yet. We're still counting votes. But what we do see is a young wave. Right. That young people showed up, surged in this election in ways that they typically have not. And, and the way that really showed was on election day, 
because of the youth, uh, because young voters were underperforming their uh, their early vote turnout from 2020, we were beginning to expect that there could be a drop off of young voters. When in fact, what we now see is that young voters just returned to their pre-pandemic voting patterns. They all voted on election day. And so that wave of Republican votes that we expected to come on election day and wipe out Democratic advantages was met with a wave of young voters that overwhelmingly supported Democrats. Let me take you to the front end of what we talked about here. Why do you believe or what do the numbers show um, and the polling show is the reason that black men have been voting Republican? So I want to push back a little bit, Ed, because the overwhelming majority of black men still vote for Democrats. About 80% of black men uh, still vote for Democrats. The problem that we started to, the trend were two or three or percent increase every cycle was that we dropped from 94% of black men's votes to 80%, right? And while that's a marginal- That's a substantial margin. That's exactly right. And it's enough to determine the outcome of, of many races. That gender gap would have been the difference for Jamie Harrison in 2020. It would have been the difference uh, for Cal Cunningham in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. That just closing that black gender gap would have been enough to, to flip a lot of races. A part of why it's happening though, uh, and, and look, man, we've done over 200 focus groups with black men trying to figure out this exact question. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a there's a there's a bunch of reasons. There's some values reasons that that Democrats seem to be moving away from values that black men uh, prioritize. Values like masculinity, mm-hmm. Christianity, things that are being owned by the by conservatives and by the right. Um, but but there's also some very transactional reasons that they believe that. Republicans are better on economic issues, and specifically that Donald Trump was better for the Black community economically. Um, and, and the reason we saw that trend reverse, that for the first time more Black men voted for Democrats than in the last election, is because of the economic progress that this president has in fact made. I have heard uh, a number of people suggest that, uh, but I also heard a number of Black men tell me when Trump was in office that they were employed at that time. They stayed employed. I mean, it's just an interesting juxtaposition of where Black men sit socially, what Republicans believe in in terms of their front, and how those two puzzle pieces somehow have have found a way to coexist. It's it's just a a, a dynamic I can't figure out at this point. That's exactly right. I was in Miami-Dade where... It is very likely that Marco Rubio will win Miami-Dade and will probably win it by double digits, which is just unbelievable. This is a county that Barack Obama carried by 30 or 40 points. It's now being carried by Republicans by double digits. But I'm not surprised by that because a month ago I was in Miami-Dade. I had focus groups with 10 black men and half of them told me that their lives were better when Donald Trump was president. Mm -hmm. And none of them said that it was important for Democrats to maintain control of Congress. Not because they wanted Republicans to control Congress, but because like one of them told me they've had control and what have they done with it? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and so when I probed those black men, the five that said their lives were better under Donald Trump, I wouldn't let them get off easy. We had to spend some time here until they gave me a list of examples. And they specifically said, you know, uh, it just felt like I was doing better economically. There were these general perceptions of of doing better. One of them did say that. Every time he looked up, he had another $1,200 in the, in, in the bank. 
Well, we know that's not true. That happened exactly one time. <laughs> but all of that contributes to this perception that Donald Trump can handle business. Donald Trump is a billionaire. He can help us all reach better prosperity. Um, and that we were able to reverse that with progress, with pot, with uh, investments like the child tax credit that reduced mm -hmm. black poverty, with uh, student loan relief, reducing the cost of prescription drugs and insulin to $35. These are transactional things that black men can say and see how they help people in their community. So let me take you to that, because if nothing else, Donald Trump has been for the remainder of or for all of, I should say, his adult life, a great marketer. Whether you like him or not, he has marketed his self and his brand in a way that very few could stand neck and neck with him. One of the other things I think that you and I could agree on very easily is that Democrats have floundered in marketing right. what they have done for decades now. How do they learn a lesson? as 2024 looms with the idea that in spite of all, and you ticked off a number of things that the Biden administration has done, uh, oftentimes when you ask people just across the kitchen table, what has the Biden administration done? They may come up with one or two things. They'll say, well, they fought for abortion, but they cannot really suggest it in a, an assertive way. Why is that? You know, uh, when we talk to black men about Trump, about the about their uh, appeal to Trump, and I ask them to give me a list. There's three things they say every time that uh, he invested in HBCUs. He had the lowest black unemployment rate in history, and the first step back, he, you know, criminal justice reform. Every single time, in every group, every room, every age, every demo, the same three things. And it was so interesting. This is why I'm glad we got back to in-person focus groups. I can get from behind the Zoom screen. They literally list them. They, they, like their fingers come out. Mm -hmm. They say, well, he's done these three things. And so when I look back at this Facebook library of ads that the, Donald, that the Trump campaign used to target Black men, because Facebook has gotten so transparent, you can go and look at it now. I'm, I'm using air quotes, quotes folks, <laughs> but, but so transparent. But when you look at that library, every single ad that the Trump campaign used to target Black men literally had a checklist at the top of it that said first step act lowest check lowest on a green check mark you know the list is what they were reciting back to me mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so what democrats are going to have to figure out is a couple things one they got to get into the political theater it's not enough to pass the policy policy is in progress right passing legislation about ripping up every lead pipe in america doesn't change the fact that in, in Flint, they're still drinking dirty water, mm -hmm. right? The, but the, the theater is to now go to Flint, put on a hard hat and pull out some shovels and line up the cameras, right? Uh, while they're still talking about Donald Trump's investments in HBCUs, well, that's because they remember the picture of Kellyanne Conway on the couch with her feet up in the couch. Black folks remember because we was so disgusted by that. Mm -hmm. But what we, but, but, but the image was, 20 black HBCU presidents standing behind Donald Trump. Well, since then, Joe Biden has made has doubled the investment in HBCUs, twice as much as Trump since then. And they're still talking about Trump's investment. Mm -hmm. We didn't have HBCUs in the Rose Garden. We didn't have our, our HBCU vice president or HBCU candidates in Georgia go to Spelman and Morehouse and pass out big old clearinghouse checks. That's the theater that we're missing. This is a messaging problem, Gordon, and, and not a and not a, a governing problem.
What do you think has to be done in terms of how you translate that message, as well as a lot of Black voters? This is anecdotal. I admit, I better say that to somebody like you. It's very anecdotal. But it seems to me that Democrats, particularly over this cycle, had to find out what wasn't right by means of Republicans versus what we did right. Mm-hmm. So abortion, when Roe versus Wade went away, they jumped on that train very quickly because they didn't know what else to jump on to give mm-hmm. that message. And they knew that it was going to be visceral so they could utilize it. I call Trump the boogeyman. We got a boogeyman. But if this is any indication of America kind of pushing away from Trump, mm-hmm. You're not going to have that same boogeyman. Will DeSantis or others be as scary? So how do you turn that train to say, yeah, we'll still put those things out front, but look at what we did. Look at what we did. Look at what we did. Yeah, that's right. Democrats, in order to maintain this surge coalition that we've talked about, these 20, 30 million new voters that have injected into the body politic specifically to push back on the toxicity of Trump specifically to fight back on the threat of Republicans, the threat of abortion rights, the threat of voting rights. You know, the threat is what mobilized a lot of our voters this time. But Democrats are going to have to put put out a, a proactive vision and agenda. And I, and, I, and I think that there's a couple of things that they can do here, because, again, they're getting the policy done. You know, they banned chokeholds and no-knock warrants. They ended the relationship with federal prisons. They made the biggest climate investment in Earth's history, <laughs> not American history, it's the single biggest invent. Like, this is the climate change president. Nobody will ever call him that. He is the climate change president, you know? But it, it's going to require us to make a few shifts. And if, if anyone listened to the president yesterday and uh, uh, on Wednesday after the election, he just gave a whole speech uh, about the midterm. And listening to it was, you know, I've done this and I've passed that and I've the most legislation and I. He's going to have to reorient the story. And the mm-hmm. hero of this story are the voters, right? It's, it's the Barack Obama, yes, we can, you know, what we can do together and not what I have done. Because uh, they just don't buy it, right? And so that's the first thing is like reorient the hero. Make the voters the hero of the story. Because you voted, we reduced child poverty by 20%. But the second thing is going to be to connect them to these resources. Joe Biden is a creature of legislation, and he believes that progress is passing a bill. Well, that's not progress for folks until they can click here and access those 3 million infrastructure jobs, or click here and access that student loan forgiveness application, or click here and access uh, a map of these lead pipes that are getting ripped up in my neighborhood. And I want to see each one get ripped up. Let me look at a map. And what, oh, next month they're doing that one. That's the progress. That's the politics that we got to get right because he's getting the policy right. So how do you do that with a man of his age? Let's just be honest about it. I mean, that's the kind of elephant in the room. He's only going to be able to do that so much. You know, he is a creature of the times he came from. And the times he came from, was the belief I heard him say, you know, right after uh, the election, well, I still want to work with Republicans. But the reality is Republicans don't want to work with you. That's right. I I had the same discussion with President Obama, who was conciliatory in nature. But in order to do that, the person across from you has to be conciliatory or it will not work. 
So how do you change the dynamic of a man who is set in his ways to a degree that helps in some ways? Um, and it's a hindrance in some. Well, he's about to find out if Republicans <laughs> the House just how conciliatory they are when they are dragging members of his administration in front of that in front of the hearings every day. Um, but you know, one thing Joe Biden has these assets at his disposal, including the most diverse cabinet in history, you know, uh, including this HBCU vice president. Who you don't see anymore. That's exactly right. And so a, a part of how we get Joe Biden to make this political and messaging shift is to move the shift from Joe Biden, right? It is, you know, Jill Biden should be talking about the investments that we're making in colleges across the country. Right. Marsha Fudge, Secretary of, of Housing and Urban Development, should be talking about the billions of dollars they've invested in affordable housing. Pete Buttigieg, a millennial LGBTQ uh, Secretary of Transportation, should be out here with a hard hat and a, and, a, and, a, uh, and a shovel in his hand every day with cameras in front of him. But the concern, you and I both know this, from Biden's kitchen cabinet was, I don't want these folks outshining my president. That is, we're going we're gonna to have to let that go. I mean, uh, if Joe Biden does not have the stamina, momentum, or desire to host 10 political rallies a week, then we're going to have to employ some people that will. We're going to have to send Pete out there to host these rallies and Marsha Fudge to host these rallies. I mean, it's an impressive bench. These, remembering that most of these folks were on a presidential stage with him mm -hmm. uh, just two years ago, and will probably find themselves on a presidential stage again. They want to audition for America. You know, send them out there and let them do it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Altruism isn't always the thing that is in spades uh, in, a, in an Oval Office, not just Joe Biden's. Uh, let me take you to some individuals and get your thoughts on them. Uh, let me let me start with what Wes Moore impressively did in Maryland uh, and and whether or not you think that is an anomaly or a future trend that we can see, because as you and I both know, winning statewide office for any African-American in any state is very difficult. Yeah, that's right. And and Wes is incredibly impressive. I'm from Maryland and understand the dynamics of these politics uniquely. And, and the part that has not been told in, in the Westmore story is that he was coming off of the single most popular governor in America. You know, Larry Hogan, a Republican in a blue state, was the most popular governor in the entire country. I think he had a 78 percent approval rating, which is just unheard of. It means that half of Democrats wanted him to remain governor. <laughs> uh, and so that's that's a, that's a dynamic there that Wes had to overcome, right? He has very different politics than Larry Hogan um, and, and very different policies. And he was able to assemble a dynamic coalition. I do think Maryland is unique uh, in delivering the third black governor in American history because about half of our electorate are people of mm -hmm. color, you know? Maryland is, a, is the most informed uh, uh, electorate in the nation. It's one of the most diverse electorates in the nation and one of the most progressive. And so I'm proud of what we've done in Maryland. I don't think that that is an anomaly. I think that we're going to see a lot more black governors, a lot, a lot more diversity um, in these executive offices. Stacey Abrams, uh, a, a lot of people had a lot of hope there. Um, but frankly, it, 
it seemed, she seemed, her campaign seemed to generate more excitement the first time than this time. Uh, Stacey Abrams is an incredibly inspiring political figure in focus groups across the country. After we ask, what do you think about Democrats? We always ask, well, which one is getting it right? Which mm -hmm. Democrats do you believe in? Stacey was not just an inspirational lightning rod in Georgia. It was across the country. You hear names like Stacey Abrams, like AOC, like Beto, mm -hmm. that have become representatives far beyond the district or the state that they represent. They represent a style of politics that the emerging electorate uh, is, a, is, is attracted to. Now, now it's, it's, what happened in Georgia is unfortunate, but it's, I want to be clear that like Stacey did not win her election, but Stacey is winning Georgia. Stacey's strategy and body politics, Stacey's infrastructure, New Georgia Project, Fair Fight, this, this uh, infrastructure that she's been building for over a decade has shifted that state uh, in, in, in irreversible ways, but also has inspired something across that entire Sun Belt. South Carolina, North Carolina, Mississippi, uh, Alabama, dark red, deep red states are all looking at electorates with 40% black voters and only half of them are voting. And they're seeing what Stacey just did. And they're, and they're beginning to shift the tide of, of, the, of the South. What do you say to those who push back and say, yeah, that sounds good. Um, she, Beto O'Rourke and others may speak to, you know, hear my air quotes going, uh, you know, the new candidate, uh, the, the, the kind that young people seek and look out to, but they're not winning anything. I I know a little bit less about Beto and, and the dynamics of that race, but I know I know what happened in Georgia, and and I and and I, I think we have a pretty clear idea of of how she lost and where she lost. Um, Stacy was not more inspiring in 2018. She was just new, you know. She was mm -hmm. new to mm -hmm. a scene. I can see um, that. Yeah, her the inspiration and in her and her style of politics was equally as inspiring. But Stacey lost in Georgia, not because of any fault of Stacey, not because of any flaw in her campaign or her strategy. Stacey lost in Georgia because she was running against a much more formidable opponent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brian Kemp as an incumbent who had defied Donald Trump and recoalesced the entire Trump coalition while still appealing to moderates, while looking reasonable to people of color, was just formidable. Yeah. And, and and I don't know that Stacey could have done anything different than she than she did to change the outcome, except for run against a weaker opponent. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great point. I think sometimes we let politics get in the way and don't look at the idea of a skilled politician. That's right. That's right. You know, Stacey is amongst the best. Uh, yeah. she, she's top three politicians on either side in America. Uh, we we are not done feeling the impact of Stacey. But I also don't think that we're done voting for Stacey. I think. Yeah. And, but I, but I also think to to that same end, we've got to look at what, to your point, what Kemp did. I mean, he understood the dynamic of playing it the way he played it. Sometimes old school politics works. That's right. And that's what he was able to do. Uh, let me take you. Let's stay in Georgia and take you to you know one of the most confounding races I've ever seen, 
<laughs> and that is uh, the Warnock Walker. Uh, I'll I'll call it. You don't have fiasco, and I just mean all across the board with this thing. Uh, you know, we found a runoff. It is, um, as I said, confounding to me that we are even in this place. That there are people who could set their sights on an idea of Herschel Walker being fit for this office. For I'm not talking about Republicans, MAGA. I just mean someone fit uh, psychologically, emotionally um, to hold this office. Um, what do you, what do you see in that? Oh man, this is, this is going to be uh, a textbook for us to learn from. How did conservative Christian values, family <laughs> value, white uh, um, nationalists, can't uh, voters hold their nose and vote for someone that represents everything mm -hmm. that they have seemingly mm -hmm. opposed in politics their whole lives, right? How did 73% of white women vote for a man that they knew beat multiple wives? Uh, how did it, th this he would say allegedly allegedly uh i'm not sure that he would say allegedly i don't think that he has ever denied any of these accusations <laughs> he, well he, he might he not was, say allegedly because that may not be in his vocabulary but someone would tell him to say allegedly that's but right. go ahead. He, would say, he would say uh because of mental illness that i you know and i've gotten better he would not deny that he held a gun to her mm -hmm. head mm -hmm. he's talked about russian roulette himself <laughs> Pulled the trigger to his wife's head. Mm -hmm. Somehow, those conservative white Christian like, they voted for him anyway. And so there's a, there's a, a dynamic happening in Georgia that I think begins to explain this. Uh, Georgia is one of the most rapidly diversifying states in America. In fact, it, it Georgia and Arizona are the two mm -hmm. most rapidly diversifying states in America. The difference between Georgia and Arizona is that Arizona is being diversified by people of color. Georgia's being diversified by black people. By black people, right. Like explicitly, it is black people that are changing the demographics of Georgia. And the more that, this is so wild, uh, and I wish I could put up a graph right now for, you, for your listeners. The more diverse, the, for every point that that Georgia electorate becomes more diverse, white voters support Democrats uh, by one point less. It is a direct correlation. Mm -hmm. Every time we enter more people of color into the electorate, more white people are voting for Republicans, a very specific brand of Republican, right? And I think that's important because it it, it is a dynamic that I think is, is emblematic of what's happening in the country. This like uh, tribalization of white voters that feel like they are losing something that they knew and that they had. Mm -hmm. If we don't figure it out in Georgia, they could... White resentment could reverse faster than black diversification mm -hmm. and, and call back the, the, the gains that we've made in Georgia. And, and I believe that what's happening in Georgia is just going to continue being replicated. So we got yeah, to I mean, it, 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 it's it's reminiscent to white flight to a great degree, That's you right. know, in, in the late 60s. That's right. I mean, the, that, that, that Christian values candidates would not. I'm sorry, Christian values voters would not find Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock appealing. Yeah. It's, it's just, there's something else happening there that we got to figure out. Let me ask you something that, that was interesting to me, because when you, when you talk about losing seats in the house with 
which Democrats will do. We don't know what that number will end up being, but they will lose some seats. I also looked at the idea of Val Demings, who ultimately lost her race, and Karen Bass, who is in limbo right now, waiting for those numbers to be counted in Los Angeles, were two formidable people in the House that will not be there. And as those of us who understand and know Capitol Hill, uh, it is about understanding the dynamics of Capitol Hill that really moves things there. Um, how much of a hit will that be to lose those two? Uh, I mean, it is it is considerable. You know, both of them represent um, extremely important perspectives in, 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 in the body politic. Karen Bass, in particular, was a prolific legislator, was the speaker of the California Assembly that made her an extremely effective legislator, former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. She was a force. You know, Maxine became a, a Maxine Waters became a cult classic uh, for millennials and Gen Z. But Karen Bass yeah. is a force. Uh, She's uh, the worker bee. That's right. That's right. She she may not grab the mic every time it's yeah. there. If Maxine it's, is the queen bee. That's right. That's She's right. the worker bee. That's exactly right. And a, and a, and a legislative workhorse she was. Uh, I, I think that she could pull it off in, in, in Los Angeles. They are waiting on a lot of mail-in ballots. I think they have until Saturday to keep waiting. And we know those mail-in ballots are going to benefit Karen Bass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Val, man, Val Dennings, there's something else happening in Florida for us to lose Miami-Dade by double digits, a black woman to lose uh, Florida by double digits. I am not a conspiracy theorist, but there's more than just votes happening there. Something is happening in Florida. Misinformation, disinformation, things that we're not detecting that are that are changing the dynamics of Florida. Let me take you to one uh, question before we end up, and I want to kind of get your prognostication for 2024. Um, I look at abortion. It was interesting because initially when Roe went down, Democrats saw a lane for them Mm -hmm. and they ran to fill it. And then it looked like because of the economy that abortion might have to take a back seat. Mm-hmm. It certainly lost some space uh, within the media, yet on election day, we saw that it was more important than the media was portraying at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yet, it really does speak to the issue of the movement by Republicans to push everything back to states' rights. Mm-hmm. How do we look at abortion as a bellwether to what I think we're going to see many other issues, particularly if they own the House. Uh, and if, if in fact, they kept capture 2024, I think you're going to see a mass, mass push mm-hmm. for states' rights to, for these issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that one way to think about it or one way to imagine what this looks like is to just look at Florida, right? It is a it's a petri dish of all of these states' rights issues. What you know, uh, parental control over classrooms, don't say gay bill, uh, um, uh, voting voting rights access, all of these things that are that that were that had federal protections because we considered them inalienable. No state can can revoke your right to vote or revoke the your autonomy over your body by pushing them back to the states. We're allowing what's happening in Florida uh, to to potentially happen across the nation. And I think what it's going to require is a 
it's a, a new type of civic education, right? Teaching young voters, black voters, and remember where we started at, those 30 or 40 million surge voters, mm-hmm. by definition, they're new to the body politic. They don't know points of intervention for a new piece of legislation, or here's who you call, or here's the meeting, the town hall meeting you could show up to. Or Because one thing we're learning about these voters, they are willing to engage in a much deeper way, right? The way Republicans have white parents burning down school boards and knocking down election uh, election, uh, 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 precincts, like our voters will activate beyond just voting, especially when the issues that they care the most about are so accessible that they're at a Tuesday meeting three blocks away from their house. That's, there's just a level of civic education of engaging this new electorate and teaching them how to how to affect the issues that are being determined at a state and a local level. Um, and, I, and I think that we're, it, it could really cause a political realignment. Yeah. Lastly, I, I want you to give, if you would, some instruction to voters who too often see election day as their final day. And I always say that's day one that you really should be engaged from that point on, particularly if your candidate wins. It's a quid pro quo. They owe you something now. And too often we just kind of put our hands up and said we do our, you know, we did our civic duty and move on and either wait to be, you know, pleased by what we see or disappointed by what we see and have had no engagement either way. Um, what do you see for 2024 in terms of the black vote? And what would you like to see as we head toward 2024 from the black voter? That's right. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because, you know, we talk a lot about uh, political power and the, uh, the, the connection between perceptions of power and political participation. Those that feel like they have power, they use it, you know. And so it, a, a part of what we've been trying to reorient is, is that political power is just electoral power. Mm-hmm. Where in fact that's just the first, that's the beginning of the power. After electoral power, you also have negotiating power, right? The power to move candidates closer to your position. See LGBTQ community and Barack Obama. They elected mm-hmm. him and then they negotiated with him mm-hmm. and they moved him to marriage equality, mm-hmm. right? But then you also have accountability power. That's the protest. That is, we tried to negotiate with you and you still ain't doing what we need you to do. And now we're gonna stand outside your office with 10 people and then 100 people and then 1,000 people and then a million people. And then the last one, and this is the one that I'm finding is really appealing to young people, after you've used your electoral power, after you're negotiating power, after you protest, well, then you got punitive power to fire people. We've tried, we've negotiated, we've protested, and now you're fired. And once we, you know, reorient around this, this cycle of power and not just that single day expression of power, then I do think we can we activate a very different electorate. The last thing I'll say there is I don't think it's voters' job to activate that power. We need leadership. We need uh, uh, not just po- politicians, but local and civic leaders, church leaders, uh, organizational leaders that begin to engage our, 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 our constituents this way. And, and I will say this. I said this off camera with you before we started. I do think we need the voter to do that because leadership has failed us. You're right. You're All right. of those columns that you've talked about, we've not seen it. 
That's and right. we've not seen it for a while now. That's right. That's and right. So when your leaders don't do, you can either go down and sync with them, or <laughs> you can to some degree shake up the norm and say, if you won't lead us, we will lead ourselves. That's exactly right. And one thing we do see in Gen Z and millennials, they are uh uh not waiting for uh leadership to take the positions that they expect they are mobilizing and they are doing it themselves and so hopefully you know next generation here is, is also ushering in a next type of politics all right let me ask you last thing and I, i'm i'm suggesting this is unfair for the for the long game so snapshot as of today right we're not even finished with this election but if you look at 2024, the $64,000 question for everybody is, will we see Trump Biden again? Uh, not holding you to this answer uh, beyond today. But today, what would you say? If I was a betting man uh, and understand the dynamics of these two parties, we are going to see a Trump Biden reelect. Uh, I think. To your point, we're still counting votes in this election. I think if Joe Biden holds both chambers, there he's not only the presumptive nominee, there's not a single challenger. Yeah, if he I holds agree. both chambers, no one can challenge him. If he loses the house, then it depends on how on, on just how much they, they put his feet to the feet to the fire. But today I, I would I would bet on a on a Trump Biden re-election. All right, but I will only hold you till uh midnight tonight on that one, man. Terrence, thank you, man. Appreciate all your work. And I appreciate that you took a little time and tried to kind of, you know, get us out of this malaise and, and move us, move us forward. Hey, Gordon, I'll come on anytime, man. Thank you so much. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.